Oh Lord Jesus, our ascended and great high priest, we come to you in prayer because we believe that you are listening. We come to you in prayer because we believe that you hear us and that you are sovereign as the Lord Almighty, the one who is actually able to answer prayer. Lord, this morning we sit eagerly in various places around the city, and yet, in another sense, we all sit in one place because we sit before your feet, eager to hear from you as you speak to us through your word. So, Lord Jesus, please do that. The many needs of this congregation are too numerous to address in a single prayer or in a single sermon, so please speak through your word preached this morning and call to each of your sheep the words they need to hear from their good shepherd. May the hardened and calloused and um, hardened be convicted and softened and broken unto repentance. May the broken and exhausted and feeble and discouraged be picked up and spoken to with gentle, restorative words of affection. May the lost and wandering be brought into your fold. We ask all these things of you, Jesus, because we believe that you are the risen and ascended shepherd, and we believe that you love us. You love your sheep. O comforting spirit, please cause these words this morning to take deep root into our lives to conform us more and more to our precious Savior. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus, appealing to his blood and righteousness alone and for the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So this week we are taking a break from our series Through the Prophets to celebrate Ascension Sunday. And this is atypical for us for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, this is atypical for us because we we don't usually like to preach standalone topical sermons, even if they are doctrinal sermons which exposit the Bible's teaching on a given topic like this one. We don't usually like to do that. We prefer usually to preach through books of the Bible so that the points of our sermon are determined by the points of the text that we're preaching. That's how we typically like to preach through, um, through series. And so, um, so, so this kind of sermon, this kind of sermon, a, a topical doctrinal sermon, is not usual. It's not typical for us. But today's sermon is also unusual because this is the first time we've ever done this at Emmaus, Ascension Sunday. This is our first Ascension Sunday, which means that it merits some explanation. So first of all, what is Ascension Sunday? Well, Ascension Day is part of the historic Christian liturgical calendar, and it marks the 40th day from Easter, which would have been uh, this last Thursday. So today is Ascension Sunday. And Ascension Day is to commemorate Christ's bodily ascension back up into heaven, which occurred 40 days after his resurrection. And historically, the church has celebrated this day as the completion of Christ's work of redemption. So we've talked about this before, that that the liturgical calendar tells the story of the gospel. And the ascension 
is the final act of the salvation accomplished in the gospel. Now, this is all well and good, but why is Emmaus going to start celebrating Ascension Sunday? And I don't want to move too quickly past this. This is a worthwhile question because in our short life as a church, we've not really made it our strict ambition to stay closely knit to the whole liturgical calendar. And and I don't think we're about to. You know, we haven't observed, for example, Ash Wednesday or Lent or Maundy Thursday. We've never had a, a Good Friday service and, uh, or even a Pentecost Sunday service. And there's nothing wrong with observing these days on the Christian calendar. We, we, we just haven't as a church. And so why Ascension Sunday? Um, of, of all the special days on the liturgical calendar, Ascension Sunday is one of the more obscure ones. Not many people... Um, talk about Ascension Sunday. So, so why is a church that doesn't incorporate a great deal of the church's historic liturgical calendar going to start including this one into our yearly rhythm? And the answer is simply this. The Ascension of Christ is a necessary, though often forgotten, aspect of Christ's ministry in the gospel. It is a necessary, though oft-forgotten, aspect of Christ's ministry in the gospel. And we believe that building it into our yearly calendar, uh, Lord willing, will help us to appreciate Christ's ministry more. It will help us to love him more and thereby honor him more. And this is important because that's what we exist for. We, We want the gospel to be the central story of our lives. And as we'll see today, that gospel story, the the gravitational centrality of our lives, would not be complete without the ascension. This, This doctrine is not an afterthought. It is an essential element to Christ's work of salvation, and we minimize it to our own detriment. Right? If Christ did not ascend to the right hand of the Father, his atoning work is incomplete, we have no intercessor, and we get no Holy Spirit, which means no salvation. So, so this is big. This is important. So that's why we're celebrating Ascension Sunday uh, today. So, so how are we going to do that today? Well, there's any number of directions we could go with this morning's sermon. We could examine what Christ's Ascension means for the Great Commission, for example, that that, that when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he was receiving the nations as a gift, and that he's now resourcing his church with his spirit to bring the nations into his kingdom. We could talk about that this Ascension Sunday. We could talk about what his ascension means for the end of human history, right, that 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 he ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he is now reigning as the sovereign king and Lord of history who will return in glory to judge the living and the dead, who will institute the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. We could talk about that. But our time is limited, and so this morning, I want to rather impress on your mind the importance of the ascension for salvation for your salvation, for my salvation. And so uh, all three points for today's sermon are going to come from the the book of Hebrews and themes related to themes that we see in the book of Hebrews. 
And so today we're going to see that in the ascension, Christ completes his atonement. Christ assumes his role as our intercessor. And point number three, Christ gives us the, the Holy Spirit. So those are my three points this morning. Point number one, let's, let's begin. In the ascension, Christ completes his atonement. Hebrews chapter one, verse three says this. He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is how the author of Hebrews begins his sermon. And here in this verse, we see a summary of what the author of Hebrews is going to elaborate on throughout the rest of the letter. We see that Jesus, the high priest of God, offers atonement for the sins of his people, and then he sits down. What's, what's happening here? This, this little phrase, after making purification for sins, he sat down, has everything to do with Christ's office as our perfect and great high priest. And the central act that's associated with this particular office is the, the act of offering atonement. The, the work of offering atonement is the central act associated with this priestly office because the priest is the one who is responsible for standing between a holy God and a sinful people. And the respective station between these two parties, this holy God and his sinful people, poses a problem. It poses a problem that only atonement can solve. Because on the one side, we have God, who is infinite and is perfect. He's infinite in his perfection and righteousness. He is all holy, without any imperfection or fault or deficiency in him. And then on the other side, you have a sinful people. <laughs> you have people who are sinful and stubborn and defiled by their wickedness and uncleanness. So the question is, how can these two parties coexist? And the answer is atonement. The guilt and uncleanness and sinfulness of sinful man has to be paid for and cleansed and cleared away in order for God to vindicate his holiness by fellowshipping with them. And that's what atonement is for. Atonement is the payment of guilt. Atonement is the cleansing of defilement. And I think, for example, of God's instruction to the people of Israel all the way back in the beginning of the Bible in Leviticus chapter 16, where we, where we read about the Day of Atonement. And on this day, an elaborate ceremony would take place in which Israel's high priest would enter into the most holy place of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. This is the, the place in the center of the tabernacle which was veiled from everyone else in the nation. And even the high priest could only enter into this place once a year for the Day of Atonement. And he would come into this space not without blood, says the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 7. 
says he comes into this place not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So he would go through this whole elaborate ceremony which consisted of sacrificing a blood, the, the blood of a bull and goat and the outer courts. And then he would take that blood into the Holy of Holies, past the veil, to make atonement for the sins of himself and then for the sins of the people. And then he would take that blood and cleanse the instruments of worship that had become defiled by their being used by sinful men and and a couple more goats were involved in this process and one that was burned up altogether and one that was sent away. This very elaborate ceremony. It was very elaborate and very bloody. And in every step of this elaborate ceremonial process, God was in effect saying to the people of Israel, you may not come near me as you are. There is a veil that separates me from you and you better not cross that line without blood to account for your wickedness we have no natural fellowship i am holy and you are wicked i am pure and you are filthy i am righteous and you are guilty that is the dire situation that atonement accounts for and it's the central work that Christ performs as our great high priest. You see, all the atoning work of Israel's priests were but shadows of the true substance of what Christ would accomplish. They were were pointers. They were signs. They were always pointing beyond themselves to something better, fuller, more secure. They were promises. And they testified to their own inadequacy by their... Perpetuity, the fact that this ceremony had to happen year after year after year after year by priest after priest after priest, all of that demonstrated that it was not the ultimate solution to the problem of sin. It wasn't the ultimate atonement for sin. It was a promise of the atonement that Christ would accomplish. Now, many Christians know this much, but what we often forget is that the atoning work is not summed up entirely with Christ's death and resurrection. The cross was, in effect, the altar upon which he, the Lamb of God, was slain. That's where the sacrificial lamb was was executed, on the cross. But when we think about the Day of Atonement... The priest sacrificed the bull and the goat on the outer court, and then he would take that blood and enter into the Holy of Holies. And that is where atonement was made. And the same is true for Christ, brothers and sisters. He offered up the sacrifice of his own self on the cross, but then when Christ ascended to heaven, he was completing the work of atonement. He was completing his atoning work as our great high priest. He was taking his blood into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for us there. So says the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11, where he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offers, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? When Christ ascended, brothers and sisters, he brought with him his own blood to atone for our sins. And when he did that, after he did that, Hebrews 1.3 says, he sat down. Why did he sit down? He sat down because he was done. He had done with a single offering, the offering of himself, what the endless sacrifices of the Old Testament priests could never do. He made actual purification for sins. His work was sufficient. No more yearly days of atonement. He could sit down because he was done. In the ascension, Christ completes the work of atonement, which brings us to our second point. In the ascension, Christ assumes his role as our mediator. Now, what am I talking about? Well, in the Bible, several people serve as mediators between God and his people, standing before God on behalf of his people and or standing before the people on behalf of God. And we're tipped off to when this is happening, when you see intercession happening. So, so when a mediator intercedes for the party that he represents. And so in Genesis 18, we see Abraham interceding for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in Exodus chapter 33, we see Moses interceding for Israel. And the Old Testament system of priests were a formalized way for priests to intercede for the people of God. So that's what they were doing with their sacrifices. They were appealing to God on behalf of the people that they represented. They were standing in front of the people in the presence of God, pleading their case with the blood that they offered. And now, now that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the, of the Father, he assumes that role for his people and he performs that practice, that he performs that act perfectly. So Hebrews 7.23 says this, the former priests, that is the former intercessors and mediators, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
You see, the problem with every other mediator and intercessor was that, first of all, they couldn't live forever. Second, their offerings couldn't get the job done. They weren't sufficient. And third, they were imperfect and just as sinful as the people they were interceding for. So there were many of them, and they had to offer many sacrifices for themselves and for other people. But Jesus, Jesus is perfect, so he doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself. His sacrifice is perfect, so he doesn't need to continually offer up more and more and more. And since he is resurrected and ascended, he never dies, which means that he will never be succeeded by another priest. The ascension means that Jesus is right now before the Father representing you to him. Christian, totally and completely, perfectly on account of his blood. This is illustrated beautifully by Charles Wesley in his hymn that we sing so often, Arise, my soul, arise. He says, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. He's talking about the, the, the uh, uh, wounds in his hands and feet inside. He says, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. This is all relevant for the believer who feels condemned and ashamed, both by his own accusing conscience and by the accuser himself, Satan. You see, Satan's vocation, we've talked about this before, his vocation is as accuser. And his power over humanity is the threat of God's own righteousness. So he loves for nothing more than to watch people suffer under the condemnation of God. So when he accuses, it's like he's trying to leverage God's own righteousness against us. So he acts as our prosecutor. And he goes before God with all of our sins and he, he reads them off one by one and says, there you have it. They deserve to die. They are guilty. They deserve hell. But because of the gospel and because of the ascension, none of those charges can be substantiated because all of them has been paid for. And Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, can eternally appeal to the blood that he offered up as sufficient answer to those accusations. Because the blood that he offered up has eternal value, infinite value. So even though we have an accuser, we always have a defender in Christ Jesus. There will never be an accusation that, that Satan can bring up against God's children those who have been brought into the family of God through Christ, there will never be an accusation that Satan can bring up against them that Christ can't sufficiently answer with his blood. I love how Martin Luther put it. I've read this quote before, but I have to bring it up again. It's so glorious. He says, When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does that mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? 
By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. The ascension means that Jesus Christ is not some far-off, past, distant figure who did some stuff in history. The ascension means that his priestly office is an ongoing reality. Jesus didn't rise from the dead and simply leave us to do our own thing. He rose from the dead to assume his role as our mediator. And he is right now interceding for his people. Which means, Christian, that your forgiveness is impenetrably secure because it is held fast by Jesus Christ himself. As long as he is your intercessor, you cannot be lost. Guys, the worst thing that could possibly happen to an intercessor is death. And we've already seen what happens when Jesus goes toe-to-toe with death. We have an intercessor who cannot be killed. And he lives forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your name. Brother or sister in Christ, your name is ever on the lips of Jesus as he intercedes for you. And one of the ongoing evidences of Christ's high priestly ministry, the evidence is that he is standing as your mediator, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to our last point. In the ascension, Christ gives us his spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and this is his farewell discourse. This is in the middle of his farewell discourse, which means these are the final moments that Jesus spends with his disciples before his crucifixion, which means that these words are incredibly important. And so he spends this time comforting them, and he he promises them and assures them of some, some promises to get them to endure through this difficult season. And one of the promises that he gives them is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so he says in John 16, 5 through 7, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. We learn from this passage that the ascension is necessary for the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. And this is because the presence of the Holy Spirit is a benefit of Christ's high priestly office. So his his role as our new covenant mediator is not only to make atonement for our sins, but it is also to give us all of the benefits of the new covenant, which include the Holy Spirit to indwell us. So when Jesus tells his disciples, it's better for you if I leave, he's saying, if I don't leave, you don't get the Holy Spirit to indwell you. Because it's only when I ascend to the right hand of the Father and appeal to my blood sacrifice in heaven that that happens. So I will need to physically leave you so that you can get this gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in effect, purchases the gift of the Holy Spirit for his people with his blood. And part of his priestly office is to go and retrieve that benefit for us. 
And so he does that in the ascension. He ascends to heaven and appealing to his blood to atone for our sins, he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And now the question that we should be asking is, what makes the Holy Spirit such an amazing gift? Why was this supposed to have comforted his disciples? Why is having the Holy Spirit inside us better than merely having Jesus next to us? And I have four benefits that I quickly want to read for you that we receive from the Holy Spirit. Four benefits that we receive from the Holy Spirit made possible on account of Christ's ascension. Benefit number one, the Holy Spirit regenerates us and activates our faith. So we see this in John chapter 3, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and Titus chapter 3, and other places. Without the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see the worth of Christ, none of us would be saved. You guys, none of us would freely cling to Christ by faith if it weren't for the ministry of the Holy Spirit because all of us would remain dead in our trespasses, blinded by the veil of Satan, and slaves to our sin. We can't freely cling to Christ by faith if we are slaves to our sin. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to liberate us, to give us new life, to open our spiritual eyes, and to awaken our faith, to cling to Christ in desperation. None of that happens without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the perk of Christ's high priestly work, which he completes in the ascension. Which means this, until Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father, he cannot send the Spirit to regenerate and indwell us. And until he sends his Spirit to regenerate and indwell us, we cannot be saved. So that's one fairly significant perk that we receive by virtue of having the Holy Spirit. Benefit number two, the Holy Spirit illuminates the Word of God. We saw this last year during our series through 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 4, 6, which tell us that those who read the Scriptures and do not in them see the glory of Christ are impeded by a satanic veil. It's not that they don't see something that's not there. Guys, the glory of Christ objectively emanates from the whole Bible. But the natural man cannot see that glory until they are freed from the veil by the liberating ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit illuminates God's word to show us what is truly there, which is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the primary and definitive way that God speaks to his church, that Christ speaks to us. The Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God's word. He gives us ears to hear the voice of our good shepherd from this word. And this is why we don't have to choose between having the Holy Spirit in us and having Christ in us. When we get the Holy Spirit, we get the Trinity the Holy Spirit facilitates a communion between Christ and his people that is far more intimate than anyone who was with Jesus during his earthly ministry. So that's perk number two. The Holy Spirit illuminates the word of God. Point number three, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. This also is seen in Christ's 
farewell discourse in John chapter 16, verse 5, when Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit will come to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And this is a description of the Spirit's ministry out in the world. And to the degree that we have the world in our hearts, this verse applies directly to us. And we have experienced this, haven't we? Haven't we experienced this sort of thing? The Holy Spirit's kind and firm method of utilizing our conscience to trouble us? Haven't we experienced the Spirit chastise us and correct us and compel us to confess and repent of our sin? And this is a grand benefit. We ought to praise Him for this. Oh, brothers and sisters, of course it's uncomfortable. Of course it's unpleasant to experience the embarrassment of being found out by the Holy Spirit, the feeling of being scorned by Him for doing what we know we ought not to do or for failing to do that which we know we ought to do. Of course it's, it's embarrassing and it, it's hard, it's, it's uncomfortable. Right? It is not a pleasant feeling to feel the convicting ministry of the Spirit who is grieved and outraged that we've given His sworn enemy safe passage into His dwelling place. Do you know that's what we do when we tolerate indwelling sin? When we harbor sin in our lives? Sin is His sworn enemy. And when we bring sin into our lives and we tolerate it, we are giving safe passage of his sworn enemy into his home, us, our hearts. And so it hurts, of course, when the Holy Spirit is grieved by our sin and he scorns us for it. But what's the alternative? Is the alternative him affirming us in our sin, the thing which is self-destructive and dishonoring to God? No, he loves us too much to affirm that which grieves him and destroys us. A true friend and helper and comforter indeed is the Holy Spirit who doesn't allow us to sit comfortably in our sin. So that's the third benefit we receive in the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of our sin. But fourth and finally, the Holy Spirit also empowers obedience. Brothers and sisters, this is incredibly important. The promised ministry of the Holy Spirit was never supposed to apply the work of Christ in such a way as to give us an escape hatch to shirk the commands of Christ. That's not what Christ died for. As if to say, go ahead and give obedience a shot. Go ahead and give obedience a shot. You'll fail. You will fail, but don't sweat it. It's cool. Christ died for you. No, <laughs> That's not at all the, the ministry of the Spirit to apply Christ's atoning work for us. Christ's ascended intercessory ministry means not only that our sins have been atoned for, but also that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to empower our obedience. This is so important. The gospel was never intended to remove the problem of disobedience by dropping the demand for obedience. The gospel was rather intended to solve the problem of disobedience by enabling obedience. Did you understand me? The gospel was never intended to remove the problem of disobedience by dropping the demand for it. 
Rather, the gospel was intended to solve the problem of obedience by enabling our obedience. It is a gross perversion of the gospel's logic to say, Christ, interceding, Christ is interceding for me. His obedience is imputed to me. Therefore, no longer do I need to obey him. I can live like hell without a care in the world because Christ has done everything for me. It's not about my due, it's about Christ done. Right? That is a perversion of the gospel logic. We can almost convince ourselves that this way of thinking is pious and actually honoring to Christ, but it is the furthest thing from it. A truly gospel logic sounds like this. Christ is interceding for me. His obedience is imputed to me. My sins have been atoned for. And my obedience has been purchased by his blood. He's proven it by sending the Spirit to indwell me and empower me to walk in obedience and holiness. A truly gospel logic sounds like this. Because of the work of Christ, I am no longer a slave to sin and I am free to joyfully obey him. Three pastoral charges in closing. Charge number one, this one is for the Christian. Christian, you are charged to adore Christ, your ascended high priest. Christian, you do not worship and serve and follow a dead historical figure. The Mediterranean carpenter who, who walked around on this planet with his disciples in the first century is reigning in heaven right now. And he, right now, alive, in human flesh, is interceding for you. And his scarred hands and feet inside and the blood shed on that Roman cross 2,000 years ago all speak a more powerful word than, that, than any that would contend with it. The accusations of Satan, your sin, the threat of death, injustice, your own anxious heart, all may sound like loud and imposing realities right now, but look to Jesus, brothers and sisters, and listen to that better word that his blood speaks, because in the end, that word will be far louder than any word that would contend with it. He cares for you. His heart for you, Christian, is, is burning with eternal, perfect, divine affection. You may not feel like this is true right now, but if you have come to Christ by faith, he is nearer to you than anyone else during his earthly ministry. He has not left you alone. He has not abandoned you. And he will see to it that you will arrive safely in his presence. So adore Christ your High priest. I love how the Puritan pastor Isaac Ambrose puts it. He says, Consider that your daily necessities call for a frequent looking up unto Jesus. You have need of Christ. You have need that he pray in you and that he pray for you to your heavenly father. You have need that he work in you and need that he work for you his own blessed will. You have need that he present you and yours blameless before the Father's presence in life and death. And at the day of judgment, there's not a moment in your life 
wherein you stand not in continual need of Jesus Christ. And can a hungry man forget his food? Can a heart that pants for thirst forget the river? Can a man in bonds forget freedom? Can a child in distress forget a father? Oh, then let your necessities for, uh, oh, then let your necessities drive you to Christ and remind you of Christ. Is not he the fountain that supplies all your wants? Second charge, Christian. This charge is to you. You are charged to honor Christ by honoring the ministry of his spirit. Which, which looks like a lot of things. It looks like spending time listening and hearing from the voice of Christ from his word. It means praying that the spirit would give you a believing and understanding heart. It means confessing and repenting of the sin that the spirit convicts you of. It means obeying the commands of Christ and pursuing godliness. In other words, it is not dishonoring to Christ to work really hard at the Christian life. As long as you are working in faith, believing that in Christ you are already justified and that your work and in your work the Spirit of God is working in and through you. So, for example, you wake up in the morning and you're lying in, in bed as a justified person. Last night, as a Christian, you were a justified sleeper, and now you're awake, justified. Does that mean that you stay in bed? No. It means that you get up and get dressed as a justified person, and you practice spiritual disciplines, and you work really hard at them as a justified person. And you work honestly at your job as a justified person and you invest in your relationships and confess your sin and obey Christ and serve others as a justified person. You don't do any of those things to win your justification, but you do all of those things with all your might, without the slightest bit of laziness, and you don't let yourself off the hook, and you take your next step by faith, trusting that the Spirit of God will meet you with the energy you need to take that next one as soon as your foot lands. And you thereby honor Christ because you show that you believe Him when he said that he would send his spirit to you. The ascended high priestly ministry of Christ is not supposed to work as a safety net to keep you from feeling the lordly demand of Christ over your life. Just because, listen, this is so important, just because Christ removes the condemnation of our failure to obey doesn't mean that he removes the command to obey. Brothers and sisters, the freedom, the freedom that we receive by virtue of Christ's ascended ministry is not a freedom from pursuing godliness. The freedom our ascended high priest grants us is the freedom to pursue godliness fruitfully. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us, making obedience possible. And not only does He make obedience possible, He actually transforms obedience from a burden to a gift. Whatever God commands us is soul-feeding, 
So if God commands you to stop being so selfish in your marriage or parenting or relationships and start confessing sin and serving your spouse and children and friends, insisting that their needs are more important than yours, he's giving you soul-enriching food. He's trying to give you manna. That's what your obedience is. It's, it's soul-enriching food. Now, you may think that you're giving something up by being obedient. And in a sense, you're right. You are giving up something. You're giving up selfishness. You're giving up pride. But what you'll find on the other side of that obedience, and indeed in the act of obedience itself, is joy. Divinely given joy. So don't insult the high priestly ministry of Christ by pitting his Atoning ministry against the ministry of the Spirit to empower us. Those two things are not contradictory. They are one in the same. Christ did not die so that you could be a slave to sin and laziness and disobedience without a troubled conscience. He didn't die and rise and ascend so that you could live as though the Holy Spirit makes no difference. He died and rose and ascended for your happy obedience, Christian. So honor Christ by honoring the ministry of the Spirit. My last charge is to any non-Christian who happens to be tuning in this morning. The charge is this, non-Christian. Consider your need for Jesus. Oh, non-believer, do you, do you see the desperate situation that you are in? What do you do with your troubled conscience? Since you have no high priest pleading your cause and interceding for you, what stands between you and God's judgment for your sin? Nothing. You are unprotected. How do you atone for your sin? How do you, non-Christian, get the blood off your hands? What hope do you possibly have that you can mend your ways? And what hope do you possibly have that even if you could, it would be enough to atone for your sins? Maybe, non-Christian, maybe you're in the opposite situation, which is far more deadly, and you don't see your situation as desperate at all. Do you you consider that, that you don't even need an intercessor? That perhaps if there is a God, that there's... There's no way that your tiny sins and transgressions of his law could be enough to get his attention. Oh, non-believer, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. By nature and by choice, you are a slave to sin and are thereby a rebel to God. Apart from Christ, there is nothing to stand between you and the just condemnation that you deserve but All that you need is offered to you in the person and work of Christ. Think about it, non-Christian. You are dead in your sins spiritually, but he enlivens with his life. You are a slave to your sinful passions, but he is a liberator. You are naked and exposed, but he offers you his robes of righteousness. He will drape them over you. You deserve wrath, 
but he offers to receive it for you. You need a mediator, an intercessor, someone to plead your case before the Father, and he, right now, is offered to be one for you. So don't delay. Don't delay. Reach out to him by faith today. Confess to him your need, non-Christian, and beg him for salvation. You can do that in faith because he refuses none of those who come to him with the empty hands of faith. Are you empty? Great. Come to Christ with your empty hands of faith and he will give you himself. Let's pray. Please water the hearts of those who heard your word this morning that seed sown in weakness might be raised in power. We ask all of these things in the strong name of Jesus to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Emmaus, may the ascended Christ bless you this week beyond. May you come to him with your heavy laden soul to receive rest. And may you be emboldened by his spirit to continue on in faithfulness for your joy and the glory of the Trinity. Amen. I love you, brothers and sisters. I miss you. Hope to see you soon. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.